This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? Y'all doing good? Everybody's dried off. It's cold and rainy this morning. You guys made the wise decision. You came for the 9 o'clock service earlier. It was in the middle of all that, and you guys waited, so good for you, all right? We're in the middle of a series we kicked off last week. It's called It's Probably Related. It's a series on family, and I just need to say this up front. It's important to talk about family. It's important. We don't often talk about our families. We don't really try to get optics on how we're doing family, but family's important because I believe family's central to the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, go all the way to the very beginning of the redemptive story, and what you find is that God begins the redemption of humanity through a family. It's what we'll call the first family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're looking at the story of that family in this series, that's how important family is. I'd go so far as to say there's only two institutions in the Bible that God gives birth to, the family in the Old Testament, and then the church, God's redemptive agent on the planet in the New Testament. Family is really important, but it's not easy, is it? It's not easy raising kids. It's not easy building a healthy marriage. As a matter of fact, it's hard work, but I don't think that we have a very healthy perspective culturally on hard work because there's stuff about hard work where it's, you know, like I feel like I'm just picking up this heavy rock to move it over here to pick it up and move it back. And some hard work, if we're honest, we, we've just kind of looked at it and been like, Man, this doesn't feel meaningful. That's the truth about it. Not all hard work is eternally significant, but the hard work of family is worth it. It is meaningful work. Looking across this room, many of us are in the throes of raising a family. For some of us, um, right in the middle of it, you, you have those late night feedings where you, you've always slept really good. And then all of a sudden, that little helpless child begins to cry in the middle of the night and to make sure that they're cared for, taken care of, we, we are sleep deprived for a season. And then you think you've got that covered and then all of a sudden they start coming down to wake you up, you know, because they've had a bad dream or they're sick. It's hard work, it's hard work. It's hard work to resolve conflict. It's hard work to resolve conflict between a spouse and you. It's hard work to resolve conflict between your parents, between a sibling. It's hard work to resolve conflict with your kids. It's hard to live in the community of family. Because as right as we might think we are, none of us, not a single one, does relationship perfectly. So to help out with this series, last week I started by kind of cultivating for us a biblical framework for understanding what family is. 
So I'm going to give you five simple points from the scriptures to understand what family really means in the context of the Bible. And the first thing to know is that the epicenter of family is marriage. This is why as Christians, we're very protective of marriage. We get very um, kind of defensive. Maybe that would be the perception when there seems to be something culturally happen, happening with the definition of marriage. It's because family is epic and it's important to the redemptive story and to what God is doing on the planet. It's very important. And marriage is at the center of that. So what does it mean? What does a healthy marriage look like, a God-centered marriage? And in this, like I said last week, I'm going to say a lot without saying a lot. Number two, God's plan for marriage is one man and one woman in a loving, committed, and procreative right relationship for one lifetime together. And there are words in that definition that if I would love to, I'd love to argue their way out. But this is exactly what the Bible says. And we need to understand that even when it is in contradiction to my desires or what I would like for it to say, God's word has authority over my life. I mean, I'll give you an example out of that. The word procreative, which means that God designed marriage, one man and one woman, to produce healthy children. For, for example, my family, we struggled with infertility for six years. I mean, I watched my wife weep and cry and weep and cry as pregnancy test after pregnancy test came back negative. And there are families that we know that have struggled with that to the point that they were never able to have kids. But the Bible says at the end of Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the man and woman, brings them together, it says, now be fruitful and multiply. It's God's plan. It's God's plan. So what does a healthy, God-centered marriage look like? Number three, within a Christ-centered marriage, the husband and the wife are mutually submitted to each other. Rules for Christian living out of Ephesians 5 begins with those words. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And while they're submitted to each other, the submission looks different. There's different priorities. The husband submitted to his wife's needs. The Bible says that we're supposed to love our wives as husbands the way that Christ laid the, loved the church. He laid down his rights. He came to die. He set aside what was comfortable and self-serving to serve the greatest need of his bride, the church. And a wife is submitted to her husband's leadership. Mutually submitted. The husband sets aside it being about him, his, it, his needs, sets aside his comfort so that the wife then can set aside her will. It's different types of submission. So if we are procreative and then we have kids, what does that look like? Within a family, parents are called by God to raise kids to maturity so that God can send them out into the world to become missionaries for his kingdom because they are ultimately his kids. We blow this. There are too many families that perhaps were like us, prayed for, believed for, waited, and then God gave a child. And instantly, God is no longer God. The child is God. We bow to our child. We worship our child. The child says jump. We jump. The child says move. We move. The child says I want that. We go get it. If you're worshiping your child, you are breaking them for their future. Because this world will not worship them. 
They are not meant to be objects of worship. We are to raise them to maturity. If you're still cutting up the hot dogs for your 12-year-old, you have missed the point. Because they're ultimately his kids. The Bible says that as arrows are in the hands of a warrior, so are kids in the hands of the righteous. We're to launch them out as weapons. And all of that is God's good and perfect will. But for some of us, we hear that and there's internal conflict because that's not our experience. So it would be negligent for me to not bring up this point, which is epic in the biblical framework. Number five, sin wrecked God's good plan. Sin, rebelliousness, our desire to do life our own way, telling God, I'm not going to do it your way. I'm going to do it my own way. What God planned to be good, sin has broken and has made it complicated. What did sin do to our families? For some of us, we encountered sin as a child when our parents sat us down, looked us in the eye and said, Mom and dad will not live together anymore. And we experience the fracture of a family. For some of us, we experience sin within our family because our parents couldn't control their tongues and said things that parents should never say. Couldn't control their actions. And did things parents should never do. We encountered sin through the hands of those who are supposed to care for us, who were abusive. For some of us, we encountered sin within family because somebody, this is what sin does, increasingly became cold and distant. Maybe it was a father as you were growing up, and then one day he wasn't there anymore. Maybe it was a husband or a wife. And sin entered into your family as somebody left you behind. Please hear this. This is the big idea we're going to deal with today. Sin fractures families and has generational consequences. It has generational consequences. We looked last week at the the beginning of that first family, Abraham, who God intervenes. He's very old. And God says, you're going to have a child. We, we know, I know you haven't had one, but the plan is, is that you will. And it's going to happen. And Abraham and, and Sarah uh, co-opt God's plan. And what do they do? They settle for halfway. Sarah says, take my maidservant Hagar. You know, go do. We'll, we'll, we'll help God out. Where did that come from? Well, it's probably related. It's Abraham's father, who before we ever meet Abraham is called out of Ur to go to Canaan, but he settles halfway in Haran. The father who settled birthed within his son the capacity to settle. It's probably related. So today we're going to continue to look at the first family by looking at Isaac. 
Abraham and Sarah welcomed Isaac into their life when they were 100 years old. Now, I am 40 years older than my youngest, okay? And there's something that therapists have termed parental fatigue, okay? We have had now a child under five for over 10 years, for over a decade. You get tired. You get tired of saying no. You get tired of fighting all the battles. I cannot imagine being 100 and having a little one running around. That joker must have got away with everything. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how tired it would be? Midnight feedings at 100. But they were faithful and they raised him up. And in Genesis 24, we start to see the emergence of Isaac's family as Abraham sends out a servant to go find a wife for his son. Now, this is strategically important because what Abraham is saying is I recognize that the call on our family is God is giving us this promised land. Which means that if God is giving it to us, he's taking it from the people who live here. And so, son, you can't marry somebody that God is taking it from. That, doesn't, that, that, that idea doesn't, doesn't work to you. God is intended for you to marry somebody that's outside of our region. And so he sends and they find the, the servant stumbles upon a young woman named Rebecca. And it is a wonderful story in Genesis 24. It is something out of a romantic movie. I mean, the, her family doesn't know the Lord, but they pray together with the servant. They end up laying hands on her and sending her off. Go, we believe that this is what you're supposed to do. And she's riding in, you know, on a horseback. Isaac is out in the field working and their eyes catch as she rides close. And this is in the Bible. They eyes close and, and she gets off the horse and they're like, we're going to do this right now. And they run into the tent of his mother and they get married right away. It is romance from the very beginning. In Genesis 25, Isaac starts a family with Rebekah. And there's a little verse, I'm going to preach on this for a second, that I've never heard anybody talk about. Genesis 25, verse 21. Look at this together. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. Does that look familiar? Wasn't that the exact same thing that his mom went through? His mom was childless. His father and his mother waited 25 years. You think he heard that story growing up? That we, were, we couldn't have a child. We, we tried to do it on our own, and it produced a lot of brokenness and a lot of fracture. And, and Isaac, we waited, and God gave us you. You know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, this is the story he grew up in. And you want to know what happened? When he faced the same problem this time, he turned immediately to the Lord. And God blessed his wife with kids. Now, it was an odd pregnancy. The Bible records that she felt things inside of her that are very abnormal for a mother. And she prays. Now, now this is Rebecca who didn't know the Lord, but has come to know the Lord. She begins to pray, God, what's happening? And God speaks to Rebecca. I want you to know there are two nations at war inside your womb. And the story of their birth happens at the end of Genesis 25 when the time came for her, Rebecca, to give birth. There were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red 
and his whole body was like a hairy garment. <laughs> Can you imagine giving birth to her? This looked like a red little, you know, baby doll. I mean, like you're covered in fur there. This is a little weird. All right, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. This is prophetic. So he was named Jacob, which the word Jacob means supplanter. In other words, like a manipulator. I'm going to take what you have. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The Bible goes on very quickly to describe Jacob and Esau. Esau is described in the scriptures as being a skillful hunter. He, he was, and this is a direct quote from the scripture, he was a man of the open country. And I'm just going to put that in a modern context. Esau would have been on Yellowstone, okay? That's who he would have been. He would have been the guy who's riding out on the horse, taking charge, you ain't going to mess with me, okay? But Jacob, the Bible says that he stayed home and tended to the tents. He cleaned and he cooked. And there's the emergence in Genesis 25 as the relationship between these kids and their parents is described in verse 28 of the fracture that is in this family. Now remember, Abraham's family. There's two sons. One is sent away. Abraham never has a relationship with him. One is cherished and kept. There's a fracture. It's probably related. Genesis 25, 28 says that Isaac loved Esau. Isaac loved Esau. And it shows you why. It wasn't because of who Esau was. It was because of what he did. The Bible says that Isaac loved Esau because he brought him wild game. And Rebekah, the mom, love Jacob I just want you to hear what I'm about to say you can't do family where one parent loves one and the other parent loves one if you do it that way you are asking for problems and those problems begin to emerge as one day Esau comes home he's been out in the open country and Jacob has been at home cooking, and he shows up. I'm, I'm famished, Jacob. Give me some food. And Jacob's like, hey, I'll give you some food if you sell me your birthright. Now, birthright was every family, when the father had died, would divide their estate up. You take the number of sons, and you add one. So if you have 10 sons, you divide it up into 11 pieces, and the oldest gets the extra. That's their birthright. Okay, Because the oldest is also going to be blessed and charged with leading the family. So they need more resources. And Jacob goes, I'll give you the stew if you sell me your birthright. Esau says literally, what good is the birthright going to be to me if I die of starvation? So in verse 33, look at what happens. Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave him gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank. Then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Do you see it? Do you see the deceit? The fracture in this family. 
In Genesis chapter 27, Isaac is dying. He's now blind. He can barely understand that somebody has come into the room. And he pulls his son Esau. Now, Esau has forfeited his birthright, but he still has access to the blessing. And the blessing would be bestowed by the father onto the son. I want you to lead my family. And he says, son, I want to bless you. Would you do something you've always done for me? Would you go out and kill me some wild game and just bring it back? I'd love to eat your food before I pass away. If you'll do that, when you get back, I want to bless you in the presence of the Lord. Watch what happens next. Rebecca said to her son, Jacob, look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now look at this. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. You see the level? Now it's, it's, it's just full-out manipulation. It's lies. It's cheating. Jacob looks at his mom and says, but mom, he's going to know it's not me. I'm not hairy like he is. Apparently Esau was a very hairy man. So Rebecca begins to cook and says, we're going to take the animal skins and wrap your arms in animal skins. We're going to put you in Esau's clothes. He won't know. He can't see. And so she sends Jacob in for the blessing. And his father, thinking that it's Esau, the older brother, prays over Jacob and blesses him as the coming leader of their family. Esau shows up right afterwards. Well, if it's you, Esau, who was that that I just prayed over? And they both realize that he just prayed over Jacob. And there's a brokenness and a brokenheartedness. When Isaac finally dies, Jacob is running for his life from his brother. The family is fractured. And this is not some subtle, momentary thing. This will last literally for decades and generations as Esau's family forms a nation that Jacob's family will go to war with for generations. I want to make two implications from this text. Number one, faith has generational implications. Faith does. And we're going to talk about sin today, but I want you to see that little thread of hope that's in the text. Abraham and Sarah spent 25 years waiting for a child. They turned in faith to God and God answered them from their barrenness. But listen, it only took a moment for Isaac to turn to God and to get the same victory. His parents had waged a battle. They had fought through it. But in doing so, they had given him generationally access to a victory. Y'all listen to me. The battle you're fighting right now is not just for you. You might be struggling with fear and anxiety, but that is not just your battle. 
That's the battle that when you win it, it will change the course of families that are coming out of you generationally in the future. You might be struggling with addiction. I want you to hear this. It is not just your battle. There are kids and implications generationally moving forward that when you get the victory, they have access to it through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not just your battle. Faith has generational implications. But when you think about this family, I want you to see this. Number two, manipulation will destroy a healthy relationship. What started as just, well, we kind of tag team the, the babies, you like that one, I like this one, turned into manipulation. A mother's plot to steal what rightfully belonged to the older son. Manipulation is a manifestation of control. The desire to control others. To control their outcomes. And I need you to hear what I'm about to say. If that brokenness is a part of your life. If you have a tendency to manipulate or you have a tendency to control, you might get your desired outcome in a relationship. You might get them to do what you want them to do. But I want you to hear this. This is a warning to you. You will not have the desired relationship that you want. What you see that comes out as the Affects of Rebecca's manipulation, the brokenness and fracture within a family is exactly what you'll get. You might get the behavior, but you won't have the relationship. Why? Because manipulation is based on lies. All control is based on lies. The most fundamental being, I know what's best. Who are you, God? We know less about Isaac than we do the other patriarchs. We know a lot about Abraham and then a lot about Jacob. But what we see in the Bible, he seems like a pretty good guy. He was faithful to the God of his father. He turned to God in the middle of a struggle. He advances the cause and the call on their family. So where did this come from? It's probably related. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 12. Story of Abraham and his wife Sarah. As he was about to enter into Egypt, he, Abraham, said to his wife Sarah, this is before their names have been changed through that moment of conversion, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and you and my life will be spared because of you. Do you see what he's saying? He's created up a narrative in his, in his own mind. They're going to steal me. They're going to kill you. They're going to kill me. They're going to steal you. Why don't you just say that you're my sister? Why don't we just lie about it? And if you'll lie about it, we'll both be okay. You want to know what happens? They still take her away from him. And who knows what they did to her 
God sends a plague on the Pharaoh of Egypt who stole Sarah, realizing that that was his, comes back, why didn't you tell me? In other words, if you'd have said this from the beginning, we wouldn't have messed with you at all. All that story that he had said, it was all made up. And in Genesis 20, he does it again. After he's believed the Lord and it's been credited to him as righteousness, in Genesis 20, look at this. Now Abraham moved on to the, from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Again, because he lied, Sarah is stolen away from him. And again, God sends plague, God sends judgment, they return. Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you say it? All this time, creating a narrative out of fear as to what's going to happen, and then manipulating, lying, and trying to control a false narrative that was birthed within him. Where did it come from when we see it in Jacob and Esau? It's probably related. It's probably related. I mean, Abraham's marriage encountered lies a, a few times. They entertained lies a few times. I mean, Isaac's family is characterized by lies. So as we wrap this up today, let's get practical in the way that we understand what we're seeing. And the first thing I want you to see is that it's not getting better. Particularly in this story, but in a broader sense, outside of the intervention of the grace and mercy of God, it's not getting better. Just practically, look around the world that we're in. Look in our community. Look in your family. Sin left alone without the intervention of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. It's not getting better. Why? Because sin is corrosive. That, that word corrosive is important to understand. Rust is corrosive to metal. If rust gets in metal, there is nothing you can do. It will eat it. The only thing you can do is slow the corrosion. Sin is corrosive. It destroys what God made good. The Bible says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Wages, this is what we earn. When we sin, we are earning a wage. So let me make just a simple application for that. If you sin against your marriage, you are earning death in your marriage. If you sin against God as you parent your kids, you are earning death in your family for your kids. If you sin against God in your finances, you are earning death in your finances. If you sin against God within your heart, by entertaining fear and anxiety, you are earning death. Left to ourselves, sin has us in a downward spiral that we're incapable of getting out of. And I need you to see this in the context of family. Number two, sin has generational consequences. 
It's not just about you. It has implications for your kids. How many times have I had a parent come in and say, he's so angry that my kid has anger problems. Yeah, it's probably related. I keep trying to control my kid, but he's so controlling he won't let me. Probably related. Exodus 34. Moses recording the voice of God, God communicating his character and nature. Verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God is gracious and merciful, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God is not only gracious and merciful, he's also just. He punishes, look at this, the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, some of us look and go, how could a good and loving God punish my kids for what I've done? This is a practical statement. And it's practical because we don't understand this. We think that sin is just like that God has a list of rules and, oh, I broke that rule and I might get punished. Sin isn't just breaking the rules. It's building with the wrong blueprint. God didn't just deliver to you a system of rules so that you would be caught and wouldn't be able to do this and I can't do that and I've got to do... God's given you a blueprint for how to build your life. And the problem is, is that we think sin's just like, oh, I broke that rule. I struggle with that rule. No, you're building a life with the wrong blueprint. And God knows if you build it that way, it's going to come crashing down. I mean, just practically speaking, as a parent, if you bring your kids inside a house that's not structurally sound, you're putting your lives at risk. And for some of us, our kids are growing up every single day inside of a belief system and a way of doing life that is not structurally sound. You'll try to argue your way, but it's not that big a deal. I'm a little controlling. I mean, I just, I just kind of think I know what's good for everybody. I mean, I know that's not right. I'm a little fearful. I worry. I'm anxious. It's not that big a deal. It's just a little thing. Matthew 13. Jesus is teaching on the kingdom of God and in three simple verses. Verse 31 through 33. He corrects the error of us saying, but that's just a little thing. He says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's a tiny seed. When planted, it grows. And then in verse 33, he says, the kingdom of God is like a little yeast that's worked into the entire dough. The point that he's trying to make is the kingdom of God is little things that become big things. You start trying to argue your way, but it's just a little thing. But it's just a, it's not a little thing. That little thing becomes a big thing. Abraham and Sarah lied twice. Two times. 
And by the end of their son Isaac's life, that family is fractured from lies. It's not a little thing. It has direct implications and consequences into the life of your children. I heard this quote years ago from James Robinson. It's so challenging. He said, whenever we struggled with our kids, my first question was about myself. What have I done to cause or contribute to this problem? I, this is such a humble posture because it recognizes that as a parent, I have planted seeds that I may not even know the implications of them in the life of mine. What have I done that contributed to this problem? What have I contributed? The Bible is so clear that our kingdom, this kingdom we're invited into with God, is the kingdom of sowing and reaping. And we sow seeds all the time, seeds of obedience and seeds of disobedience. And in Isaac's family, you see that seeds of disobedience are bringing about the fruit of destruction. Chaos, fracture. But you see a thread that the seeds of obedience are also beginning to produce hope and change. That's why what we're doing in spaces like this is more important than just filling your cup up so that you can get through the next week. There are families that are being rescued in this room. There are generations that are being altered. There are people sitting in this room who had never heard the Bible taught, who had never sat down with the Word of God, who had never received Jesus Christ, and now their kids are growing up in a platform, in an ideology that had never, ever been made available to their family. There's rescue, and there's hope in a space like this, which is why I just need to say this. Number three, sin does not have the final say. It does not have the final say in Deuteronomy, the essentially last will and testament of Jesus, or not of Jesus, but of Moses, as he's, he's kind of writing towards the end of, end of his life. He's not going to get to go with the children of Israel into the promised land. This is his kind of culmination of all of his work. He recalls Exodus 34, but he adds a detail to this. Deuteronomy 5, 9 and 10. You shall not bow down to them or worship idols for I the Lord your God am a jealous God punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but pay attention to this but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments what's he saying yeah there's going to be family cultural issues when you allow sin to live in your family this is why some families are controlling. Some families always have to be right. Some families can't handle conflict. It always turns into drama. Why? Because it's handed down from generation. There are consequences culturally within families. But the Bible is telling us here that it's not just the consequences of my sin, that sin doesn't have the final say, that when I choose to love God, and y'all need to get this idea that loving God is having an affection towards Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Loving God looks like obedience. It looks like going to God and saying, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it. If I choose to love God, there are generational implications and they're much stronger than my sin. 
The Bible says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. But that's not the final say. Eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now you listen to me. Sin has a path it wants you to walk. And at the end of that path, there is destruction. There is fracture. There is an upending of all that God wishes to give you and build. Sin has a path, but God has a plan. God intervenes in the first family in the life of Jacob as it is spiraling out of control. We're going to look at that next week. Left to ourselves, outside of God's intervention through His mercy and grace, it just keeps getting worse. God rescues this family as He rescues Jacob. And I need you to hear what I'm saying. God intervened in your life and in my life. We were lost in a downward spiral that we could not get ourselves out. And Jesus was sent from heaven to die on a cross and bear our sins. And there He became the substitutionary perfect Lamb who died in my place. I should have died. He became the sacrifice for our sins. And what do we see in 1 John 5? Who is it that overcomes this world? I'm not a victim to my past. I'm an overcomer through Jesus Christ. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Your greatest struggles and brokenness are probably related. And there's some work to be done to look at our family of origin, to understand where we came from. To go, as I said last week, to go back so that we can go forward. But as an adopted son or daughter of Jesus Christ, into the family of God, your victory is probably related as well. Don't miss next week as we look at God's intervention into the life of Jacob. God is not going to leave you to sin. Sin does not have the final say. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.